It's 1001 LA Nights. This is LA Rivers with you. We're talking about stories and what makes a story compelling today. My special guests on the podcast are Heston and Connie Cleveland. They bring to me a story, a real story, multiple stories within a story. And I was a journalist growing up. I ran a newspaper for three years in high school. And you might say, oh, that was high school. Yeah, but it was weekly. You learn a lot running a weekly newspaper, even if it's in high school. And it was old school. We didn't have computers back then. (laughs) We had to dig and find good stories because we uh, we had an actual journalist as our advisor. So... I'm always out looking for the good story. It was a habit I built young. And the reason I bring that up is because in the reading today, I'm reading Richard T. Ryan, or from his new book, Merchant of Menace, which I have blog, blogged about on my personal blog, uh, coming out in today's episode. The Merchant of Menace, it's a Sherlockian tale. And uh, Richard, was a newspaper man for many years, an editor and a writer. And in honor of that, it's talking about finding the compelling story. There's something that grips you with a compelling story. There's passion, there's intrigue, there's something that makes you keep wanting to know more. And Both of these may seem juxtaposed against each other. A true life love story of a woman and her husband and their band. And then 40 years later, her son finding out that their records were actually worth something. And wanting to get his mom the respect and recognition she deserved and his late father's legacy seen. He reached out to me on Twitter and I almost said, hey, my podcast is for writers and books. And I thought, no, it's about stories. And so I invited them on as my guests and they were great guests. And I hope you listen to their story and you listen to a little bit of their music. And then I read from Merchant of Menace. And I've given them, I'm part of the blog tour for that. So if you can go take a read on my blog, um, the, the link will be in the description of the podcast and I'll be tweeting it out on Twitter. One last little comment before we get to the interview. If you want to be on the show, don't rule yourself out, but please do listen to the show if you want to have your work highlighted here as a writer. If you want to come on as a guest, uh, do listen. This is a passion project. It's for fun. It's what I like to talk about. It's what I like to read. Um, It's what I like to write. And I hope it helps or is at least entertaining to those of you who listen. But if you want to come on to anything or submit to anything, go listen or read that publication's uh, work to know if you're a good fit or not. And with that being said, a great fit great guests, Heston and his mom, Carrie, with the beautiful voice, Cleveland. 
or in the next segment. I hope you enjoy. It's a great story. All right, everybody. We've All right, everybody. We've got a special, special pair of guests. Pair of guests on this. We have. We have the amazing, the amazing Harry Kripen, Harry Kripen, and her son, and her son, who are about to tell who me, who are about to tell me an amazing love story, an amazing love story. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Thank you. Thank you. So, so first off, Heston. First off, Heston. You reached out. You reached out on Twitter. And started telling me this really cool story. I would love you. I would love you share. As, uh, the story, As, uh, with, my the story with my So listener. you're Carrie's so son. You're Carrie's son. And, and you're doing something pretty you're special. You're doing something pretty special. Tell us about it. Tell us about it. First of all, thank you for having us and allowing us to share what I think is one of the greatest love stories, a family love story of all time. I grew up in a heavily music-oriented house. My mom and dad loved music, loved each other, and I loved them. My dad started a band in the late 70s and early 80s. And they became pretty popular locally, toured around the Bay Area, performed at pretty popular nightclubs uh, back then. And I took their music for granted. Um, Fast forward to Last year, well, my my father passed and my mom continued on until all the bookings were completed and she decided to stop because uh, musicians and other people didn't really respect a female leader. Mm-hmm. So we were just messing around one day messing with Beanie Babies. Mm-hmm. And, okay. you know, we were Googling how much this one was and that one was because my mom collected them. And so uh-huh. after about three hours, we got kind of tired of that. And my mom says, well, I'm going to bed. So... I was still interested in playing how much is this and how much is that. So jokingly, uh, my mom and dad had pressed a few albums. And I said, well, how much is an original copy of a Carrie Cleveland album? Mm 
Right. And Google said $450. Wow. So I I ran and told my mom, Mom, $450 for your album. So we started looking online again. And I bumped into an old friend who was into buying and selling old albums. So we put some in consignment in a record shop. And shortly after, a guy named Chris Webb contacted us, and he was from London, and he was interested in reissuing the album. Wow. So we did a contract, and he pressed them up, and I had no idea what kind of following my mom already had. And Chris, the first thing he said was, was that Carrie I was talking to? And I'm like, yeah. He said, I thought she was dead. I've been looking for her for three years. Wow. And you know, we're like, really? You know, so... Uh, I joined, I made a Twitter account in December because I had, you know, I had a little experience in the music following my mom and dad around and my dad used to go to jam sessions where, you know, all musicians, of course, bills have to be paid, but these guys would get together for the love of music and just play it. And, you know, I thought about it. I said, well, I was really blessed because I'm an only child and my mom and dad had something in common that they both loved and they loved each other. Mm -hmm. And I loved them. Mm -hmm. So I didn't realize, well, of course I realized my mom could sing but I didn't have any understanding of really what people thought. So I started sending her music out to various people and the social media overseas in London and France, they were like, your mom's voice is beautiful. She deserves all this recognition. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that just built my confidence up. And I'm like, Mom, they, you know, they really think you could sing like I do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we started doing interviews and the album started doing good online. Uh, we have a nice following. And... I think because of the love story, people are really gravitating to it because like I like I said, I started in December doing this and I didn't have any idea of what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what RT meant. Right. I, I would call my friend, what does RT mean? Right. He said retweet. Right. And then they said, well, People say, yeah, I like your music. I'm going to post it, and I'll tag you. I'm like, what is tag? Right. <laughs> I don't know anything. Right. 
So, you know, slowly I'm learning. And, you know, my mom has no idea about online stuff. But together, it's, you know, it's coming along. Um, when I run into a roadblock, another door opens. And I started thinking, wow, this is really something. This is, music is, is 40 years old. And, of course, the, I'm not going to say my age, but, you know, it's, it's really good music. It is and good music. It is good music. It, you it's, know, I... It, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I put it on uh, what I would say uh, a hip-hop blog. Where you right. know the the music, right. the music is older than the listeners, right, right. And the the blog I put it on was Trans City Radio, okay. In the contest, okay. just just to see, and they have like a, a they play the top music of the day, and on Thursday evenings they have the top forty. Nice. And I got tagged. Your mom made it into the top 40. Oh, wow. And I'm like, wow. So then Friday, they have the countdown. And I put one song on, and it made it to number 30. And I direct messaged them. I said, is that good? And they said, man, are you kidding? You get thousands of submissions a week. And your mom made it to number 30 her first time. Wow. That wow. Is, I, that, I'm like, wow. So and I, I noticed, I said, so well, I have a question. uh-huh. I have a question for Carrie. I have a question how did for Carrie. Feel how did that feel to, like, to, the first time your like, son submits you to a top 40, you make it in, and you come in at 30? Uh, it was, I was happy about it. Yeah. Uh, I yeah because it's so old. I didn't have no idea that uh, it would, you know, end up being that good. But I'm I'm happy. I bet. I bet. I have a question. I have a Another. question. I'm a mom. I'm a mom. And I can only and I can only imagine how it how might feel it might to have feel your baby boy. Your baby boy. Because no matter how old they get, no matter how old they get, always how does it feel to have him sharing you and your family and your family. How does that feel? How does that feel? Well, uh uh I'm happy about it, and he seemed to be so proud. Mm-hmm. He seemed to be mm-hmm. so proud. I mean, we have T-shirts. He and I have T-shirts we wear. Oh. And uh, when someone oh. when someone see it, they ask, "Is that you?" He said, "Yeah, that's my mom." And he'll go over and start telling them the whole story all over again. <laughs> so 
we are really having fun with it. I just hope uh, things keep happening for us. I think, I think, I think it will. I think it will. You know, when I heard your story, I was like, but I'm going to figure out a way but I'm gonna figure to make this way work as a And I know you want, and like, know you're you looking want, for somebody to do a biopic or, you know, or, you know, script or a book or a book and writers do listen to this podcast. Um, it is a compelling it story. It is a compelling story. And it is a positive And I think the world needs a lot of that. And I think the world needs a lot of that. What's your favorite song? What's your favorite song? And I asked that to Carrie and first. And I asked that to Carrie first. Well, my favorite song, I like uh, Keep on Looking Up. Mm. I really like, I really, that's my favorite, and, um, and take a moment, but keep on looking up the, the title, the first song on there, that's really my favorite song. Nice. Nice. And your husband wrote And your you. husband wrote you. Right. My husband did. Right. Yeah, he wrote, he wrote all of them. I love that. I love that. He played every instrument and he wrote all the music. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. What's your favorite? You know, what's your favorite? Oh, go ahead, Carrie. Oh, go ahead, Carrie. When we used to play, uh, we used to uh, give out our albums. Uh, and I have some friends uh, still have theirs that have never opened them. Oh. Um, oh. So I don't know if that's good or bad. Right. But, <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, I just, uh, they're done just a little different. Are they done a little different? Yeah, the remake is has a... a uh, uh, More music, different versions of of a few songs on them. Mm -hmm. And to okay. answer your question, my favorite is the whole album. <laughs> but if you put a gun, if you put a gun to my head and I could pick two, my yep. favorite yep. is "Take a Moment." That's the slow ballad. Mm -hmm. And I listen to it over and over, and it's like, that's my mom, and she's singing. You know, mm -hmm. I could, I would put her up against any female vocal artist on that song. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. then, of course, my favorite is "Make Love to Me," the seven-inch promo. Mm -hmm. which okay. is number eight on the album or CD. Nice. Nice. And that's the one that um, the record company was looking for 
we couldn't find it. And someone he found had a 45 in London. Wow. And wow. that was the most sought out after one. We had to do a cease and exist, I, I think you call it, for... And desist or a DCM. Yeah, for people who are downloading it online and, and making money off of it. So the, right. the record company had me draw up something and send it out. Right. And finally, right. they uh, stopped doing it. So they put it on the reissue. And that was the one. The first one was uh, Love Will Set You Free. That was the most popular one. Mm -hmm. It has a, a video, uh, a girl called Northern Girl Dancing. And it has about 600,000 views on wow. YouTube. Wow. That's what I said. I had no idea. Like I said, you know, I'm just learning at least halfway know what I'm doing on the internet. And stumbled across it and it's like, wow. That you know, was the one that you know, Uh-huh. It just goes to show It just goes to show that it's never too late. It's never too late. Especially in this age Especially in this age of where where things can open up for creative whereas in 30 whereas in 30 the hurdles were so you know and now and now with a little with a little question asking and and think it's your passion and your pride in and your pride in your family story that gets people on board. That's why when, when you got a hold of me, that's when what got a hold of me. That's what got Let me go look at this. This is really cool. And then I listened to your mom's voice. Holy crap! Holy crap! This is really good. My mom's really good. She's really good. She's really good. Yeah, you know that's what I tell people. When uh, I was the sound man, I would go and set up, you know, the sound system and the keyboard. And a few of my friends would come. And I'd go, my mom could sing. And you know how people like, mm-hmm, okay, yeah, all right. 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 And so she would start singing, and they'd look at me and go, your mom could sing. And the first thing I say is, I told you. Right. And you, right. You know, I, I, it's not only my mom, she could sing. Right. Right. And, and it's beautiful. And it's you're beautiful. You're because sometimes because artists sometimes don't artists like the don't like that is that true in your case? Is that true in your case? Nice to have putting it out there and putting it out there. Yes, anybody want to know? I'll say, 
Uh, let me get my son. <laughs> Perfect. You know, it's, it's funny. We have a long, we have a long hallway, and I'll be in my room, and she has to walk quite a ways with the phone, and I can hear her walking down the hallway. Well, hold on. Let me get my son so he can explain it to you. There you go. There and, you go. And you know, I have no problem. Telling them, I love it because you know, not only she's my mom, she has a beautiful voice, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she's beautiful. You know, yep. I, oh I, yep. I I look at her, I look at her, and I'm like, you know, I have a beautiful mom. You do, you and do, you do. I'm the not carrying. Which you're gorgeous now. Which you're gorgeous now. You really are. You really are. The album, Thank cover, you. the album cover is stunning. It's stunning. Thank St- you. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. And I'm really, really, I'm glad really, really glad you're getting the attention. You're getting the attention. This music, this music is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. All the way across. The All lyrics, the way across. The lyrics touch you right in the touch heart. Touch you right soul. in the heart and soul. Thank you. Your voice Your is Sunny. And the story and is, the story so beautiful. is so beautiful. So where can people so where can people find your um and I'll let Justin um, for this. Let tell us all the social media feeds. Where can they go listen? Where can they go listen? Buy the music. Buy the music. Tell everybody. Okay. Tell everybody. Okay, you can listen to it on YouTube, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Awesome. And you could purchase it on Amazon, Bandcamp, and Kalita Records. Okay, great. Okay. And great. Ju- oh, I'm sorry, and Juno. Nice. And, the, nice. and iTunes and Apple Music. And for inquiries, you could find me, of course, on Twitter, Cleveland Heston, or you could email me, HestonCleveland5 at gmail.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it has been well, it has such been a pleasure. To have both of you to on, have both of you on 1001, 1001 Alex. and, uh, and uh, I'm going to ask you the I'm last question. I'm going to ask you the last question. Instead of reader, if there's one thing, there's one thing you hope you for listeners. To take away. To take away. After they've done listening. After they've done listening. What would that be? What would that be? Never give up on your dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's 40 years. <laughs> and, you know, I just wish my dad was alive. Yeah. So he can yeah. see the resurgence. Yeah. 
yeah. of of his yeah. music. So the main thing is never give up on your dreams. Yeah. 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 I bet he's smiling bet right he's now. Smiling right now, you guys. Yeah. It's it's a beautiful it's, legacy. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful legacy. Story. It's a beautiful story. You guys can read more about the press uh, link in the description. And go listen because this is Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. It's time to get comfy and cozy. Time for a story. Remember, every reading here on 1001 LA Nights is a cold reading. And what does that mean? It just means I'm reading you a story. It's not an audio play or an audio book. It's me reading you a story. It's one of my favorite things to do. Read aloud for other people's enjoyment. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be cozy and comfy. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to read from Richard T. Ryan's Merchant of Menace with permission from the author. And this is being read by L.A. Rivers. Introduction With a great deal of time on my hands, having retired after nearly a 40-year career as a journalist, I have been indulging my passion for the printed word, both poring over manuscripts and attempting to write my own. Like Sherlock Holmes, I consider myself a voracious reader, although my memory is not as sharp as his. One day, as I was rummaging through the various cases in the tin dispatch box of Dr. Watson, which I had acquired at an estate auction in Scotland, I noticed the bottom of the box seemed ever so slightly raised in one corner. Upon closer examination, I realized that what I believed to be the bottom of the case was actually nothing more than a thin sheet of metal which had been cut to the exact dimensions of the box. Taking a small flathead screwdriver, I was able to pry up that false bottom, and underneath I discovered this latest case, which had been hidden here. Hidden there. I must admit, I found the notion of Dr. Watson secreting a manuscript away in the bottom of a box, which he owned, and which many believed to be locked safe away safely in the vaults of Cox and Company, too fascinating to resist. So I sat down and began to read it immediately. As readers of my past efforts are aware, the cases in this box had all been withheld from the public for various reasons, and the Merchant of Menace is no exception. While Holmes' vanity forestalled the publication of The Druid of Death and the potential political fallout in Italy and England respectively precluded the publication of the Vatican cameos and, to a lesser degree, The Stone of Destiny, I believe the astute reader can ascertain several reasons for withholding this particular manuscript from the public. The fact that it was so carefully concealed speaks to the embarrassment which might have fallen at the feet of any number of families and highly placed officials should it have ever been released near the time of the events. After I had read Dr. Watson's notes a second time, I must admit that I was also somewhat hesitant about releasing this particular tale. I am convinced, however, that this adventure deserves to be seen despite the good doctor's misgivings, as well as my own. That bit of information having been dispensed with, 
I caution readers, this is one of the strangest cases that ever found its way to 221B Baker Street. If, like the great detective, you have a taste for the outre, then I think you will find this tale to your liking. If nothing else, it certainly offers certain insights into the sensibilities of the late Victorian and Edwardian eras, which Holmes called home. Richard T. Ryan Chapter 1. London, 1901 This case, which eventually proved to be one of the most daunting tests of the true metal of my friend, Sherlock Holmes, had its rather inauspicious beginnings in what at the time appeared to be a fairly mundane encounter. One Monday morning in late April, while I was reading the paper over breakfast, an item captured my attention. According to the article in The Guardian, a rare jewel-encrusted dagger had been stolen from the library of Lord William Thornton. Thinking my friend might find this of some interest, I asked, Holmes, have you read about the theft of this dagger from Lord Thornton? Indeed I have, he replied. If this is the piece of which I was thinking. It's actually a jambier. I shouldn't be surprised to learn some footman pilfered it, no doubt in order to settle his gambling debts. There is nothing there for us, I believe. I was not surprised at my friend's lack of enthusiasm, as common crimes did little to stimulate his interest, and truth be told, he found them more tiresome than challenging. Nevertheless, I felt compelled to inquire. A jambia? Surely you came across them in India, he replied. Not that I can recall. Sensing yet another opportunity to impress me with the breadth of his knowledge and having warmed to the subject a bit, he continued. Jamb Jambias are wide, double-edged knives that can trace their origins to Yemen. In that country, they are a symbol of social class, and I have heard it said a true Yemeni would rather die than be seen in public without his jambia. Rather like those American cowboys and their pistols, I ventured. Holmes cast me a withering glance, and continued, though I had not even spoken. As is the case here, they are often embellished with gold and precious stones— Although I will must admit that while I have no idea how Lord Thornton acquired his jambia, I must say that people who keep such objets d'art around the house are simply asking for trouble. Decorations are one thing, but a trophy such as that, acquired only because you are wealthy and powerful, well, that just strikes me as a little more than ostentation. You cannot mean that, I said, gazing around our cluttered room. Look at your own collection of odds and ends littering our lodgings. Y yes, but none of my possessions, strange and varied as they may be, was looted from a foreign country. Sweeping his arm about the room, he said, There is nothing here that has not been earned and paid for by the sweat of my brow. Does that include your Stradivarius? Once again, in ignoring my vibe, Holmes continued, At any rate, I am expecting a visit from Lestrade regarding that, regarding that self-same knife. And what will you tell him? 
Look to the servants, replied my friend. They are always among us, yet they are seldom noticed. Thinking those would be the ideal traits of any good person in service, I returned to my paper as Holmes resumed working on a monograph he was preparing regarding tattoos and their popularity among the criminal element. Perhaps an hour later, just as I was getting ready to leave for my club, I heard the bell ring. I shouldn't be surprised if that was Lestrade now, he said Holmes. I decided to wait, and a moment later there was a knock on the door. "'Come in, Mrs. Hudson,' my friend yelled across the room. Our landlady entered and said, "'There's a gentleman here to see you, Mr. Holmes.' I could see by the look on his face that Holmes was both genuinely surprised and pleased. "'Please show him up, Mrs. Hudson,' looking at me, he said." A new client, and a visit from Lestrade. This certainly has all the makings of a red-letter day. A moment later, a tall, spare gentleman with close-cropped grey hair stepped into our rooms. After examining us both, he turned to where Holmes was standing and said in a deep, sonorous voice, Mr. Holmes, I am William Thornton. Perhaps you have heard of me. He continued as he handed my friend his card. Holmes replied, To answer your question, I have heard of your missing knife, and thus, by extension, yourself, Lord Thornton. Correct me if I am wrong, but it is a gem beer that has been stolen, is it not? Before speaking, Thornton glanced at me, and Holmes continued, This is my friend and colleague, Dr. John Watson. You may speak freely in front of him, and I assure you, he is the very soul of discretion. Having made up his mind, Thornton continued, "'It is a jambia, indeed, and I must say that I had rather hoped to keep the theft a secret, but apparently such things are impossible once the law has become, become involved.' "'And with whom have you spoken from Scotland Yard, Inspector Lestrade?' Pausing for a second, Thornton looked at Holmes and remarked, I was told that you were rather perceptive. But yes, the fact is, I have been dealing with your Inspector Lestrade, who has arrested my valet and charged him with theft. Glancing at me with an I told you so look on his face, Holmes replied, He is hardly my Inspector, your Lordship, but if an arrest has been effected, then why are you here? "'Gilbert, my valet, has been with me for more than twenty years. "'He would no more have taken my jambia than you, Mr. Holmes.' "'Do tell. Then why did Lestrade arrest him all... Didn't... "'Do tell. Then why did Lestrade arrest him? "'Surely he had evidence of some sort in order to justify the charge.' "'Thornton replied.' The police found a large sum of money in Gilbert's room, and after some inquiries they learned he also owed more than five hundred pounds to a bookmaker. After another glance in my direction, Holmes said, I grant you that the evidence is circumstantial, but on the surface it does seem rather convincing, does it not? What does your man say for himself? He admits to being in, in debt, said Thornton. "'And how does he explain the money?' asked Holmes. 
He refuses to say where he obtained it. Curious, said Holmes. A simple explanation might free him, yet he allows himself to be incarcerated instead. Did anyone else have access to the Jambia? A number of people did, replied Thornton. The night before it was discovered missing, we hosted a small gathering at the house to celebrate my wife's birthday. When you say small, exactly how many people are we talking about? There were four other couples, in addition to my wife and myself, but they are all above suspicion. Of that I can assure you. No one is above suspicion, Lord Thornton. People will do the most unexpected things for reasons that defy any kind of logical ex explanation. May I ask where the knife came from and in what room it was kept? My father was an officer in the army, serving in India as well as China during the First Opium War, and he brought the Jambia back from China. He would never elaborate on how the weapon had come into his possession, and since he's been dead these seven years, I suppose we will never know exactly how he came by it. However, he was inordinately fond of it, to the point where he had a special wooden holder made for the knife, and he always kept it on his desk in the library. Since his passing, I have done the same. Interesting, said Holmes. One is always curious about the provenance of such items, and whether they actually belong to the person who now possesses them. What are you suggesting? asked Thornton angrily. I am merely pointing out that we know precious little about the object in question, and while it has been in your family for these many years, there, are, there may be others who believe it rightfully belongs to them. Possession is nine-tenths of the law, replied Thornton, in a brusque tone which I could see he had rubbed, which I could see had rubbed my friend the wrong way. If you're going to quote the legal axioms, at least quote them correctly. I beg pardon, said Thornton icily. The actual saying is, possession is nine points of the law, and if you wish to trace that maxim back to its Scottish origins, they hold that possession is eleven points of the law, and there be but twelve. But I fear we are dis digressing. The people at your soiree, friends and business acquaintances? All relatives and close friends of a long duration, and I would be willing to swear that none of them took the Jambia. At that point, there was a knock on the door. Yes, Mrs. Hudson, asked Holmes. Poking her head inside she announced inspector lestrade is here to see you mr holmes by all means show him up i could see holmes was relishing the prospect of lestrade in the same room with lord thornton are you sure this is wise i whispered after thornton had turned to stare out the window we are all civilized replied Holmes placidly. When Lestrade entered, Holmes greeted him warmly, saying, Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Inspector. What brings you here today? Even before he had fully entered the room, Lestrade caught sight of Thornton. I have questions about case, replied the Inspector. Looking at Thornton, 
Lestrade decided to seize the initiative and said, Lord Thornton, may I remind you that I'm the investigating officer on your case, and any concerns you have should be addressed to me. There's no need to involve Mr. Holmes in the affair. I told you Gilbert is innocent, but you arrested him anyway, replied Thornton. I will not stand idly by while there is a grave miscarriage of justice. I did not arrest Mr. Gilbert, replied Lestrade evenly. I merely detained him at the yard so I could question him further. He has answered all my questions satisfactorily. His story has been verified and he has been released. Well, Inspector, demanded the Thornton, have you recovered the Jambia? Not yet replied Lestrade, but I have my best men working on it. By the way, Inspector, may I inquire as to what occasioned your visit to Mr. Holmes? asked Thornton. I'm afraid that's a matter of police business. Another case entirely, replied Lestrade. Inspector, I shall give you one week to recover my property. Mr. Holmes, if that Jambia is not in my possession by that time, I should like to retain you to ascertain its whereabouts and effect its recovery. I believe you have my card, sir. Let us cross that bridge when we come to it, your lordship. I do indeed have your card. Here is mine. Should anything else about the knife or the theft occur to you, please inform Inspector Lestrade, if need should arise. Arise, I will consult with him. Thank you, Mr. Holmes, he said, shaking my friend's hand. Looking at, looking at myself, then Lestrade, he said, Dr. Watson, Inspector, good day to you both. After he'd left, Holmes looked at Lestrade and said, Another case entirely. Prevarication hardly suits you, Inspector. I had to tell him something, Mr. Holmes. The man has been making my life miserable. If I didn't know better, I'd swear he had something to hide himself. So, you have come about the Jambia. Looking sheepish, Lestrade said, I do need your help, Mr. Holmes. When we had the valet down at the yard, he informed us the money in his room had been loaned to him by Tom. Thornton's wife to cover his debts. When I braced her about it, she admitted advancing Gilbert the money and begged me to keep her secret. You may t- make what of that as you will, but I was rather impressed by the valet's nobility. That's all well and good, Lestrade, but what have you learned concerning the theft? That's the problem, Mr. Holmes. All of Thornton's guests and their spouses would appear to be in the clear. We can find no hidden debts or anything else unsavory about them. In fact, three or four of couples, three of the four couples are actually better off financially than he, and the remaining couple is not wanting for anything either. So we have a stolen knife that was taken at the, an unspecified time by a person or persons unknown and unseen. Home, said Holmes. That about sums it up, said Lestrade. Turning to me, Holmes smiled and said, Watson, perhaps I was mistaken in my initial assessment of the crime. There may be something of interest here yet. So then you'll help me, Mr. Holmes, asked Lestrade. 
Indeed, I shall also try to be as circumspect as possible. After all, you know how much those unseen and known thieves hate being disturbed. I saw Lestrade redden slightly, but since he was in need of my friend's help, he remained silent. What none of us failed to realize at the time was that although they were uttered in jest, Holmes' words would prove to be uncannily prophetic. And that was a sample reading of Richard T. Ryan's Merchant of Menace, done in choppy English accents by yourself. Um, He actually has an amazing... Uh, reader for his audio versions of his books. Um, Nigel is fantastic. I hope he's doing The Merchant of Menace as well. And you can get those on Audible. You can buy Richard T. Ryan's book on Amazon and everywhere else that great books are sold. And you can find the links in my blog post review that you will see in the podcast description. I want to thank Richard for letting me have a stab at reading his story to you. And I can guarantee you it's a fascinating read. It's a fun read. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more in the segment below about some of my favorite things about it that popped out to me. They may not be uh, the same things that pop out to you. There's a lot to this book. But once again, that was me, L.A. Rivers, reading a sample of from the introduction and first chapter of The Merchant of Menace by Richard T. Ryan. And there you have it. Another episode of 1001 LA Nights. This time we were talking about compelling stories. And in Richard T. Ryan's book, The Merchant of Menace, which I have up on my personal blog, which you can still access at 1001 LA Nights, just go to the blog section and it takes you over to my WordPress blog, the LA Rivers blog. Uh, One of the things I really loved about this book was how he went on this escapade of, of treasures that were being stolen. One of them being original plates by William Blake uh, for Eurizen or Eurizen, depending on how you want to pronounce that, which really kind of shook me and it's not really a spoiler to tell you about it I didn't write about it in my review but it was a a delightful surprise because I studied that particular book when I was in university and got to go to the Tate Gallery in London and see some of the images and for it being an 18th century work was really remarkable and very very much ahead of, of the time and it's it's uh, almost profane in its its timing back then. So to have that that lovely treasure be in the book um, just kind of struck me as interesting because it's not something people hear a lot about. And uh, there were other treasures in there as well that were delightful. Uh, one of the things I love that Richard does as a writing device to draw the reader in is. You know, if you're going to write a Sherlock Holmes novel and not just pay homage, but stick with canon, that's no small feat 
and it's really quite an exercise in writing. Uh, Richard is is recognized by the Baker Street Irregulars, and that's a not-for-profit group that kind of uh, vets literature to say, is it canon or not canon? Is, is it truly in the spirit of Arthur Conan Doyle, or is it just loosely tying in in another vein? And he's stuck with canon. And to do so, uh, you noticed I read the introduction. I love that. Playing on his own life experience as a, a newspaper man. And you know, most people forget that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle originally published the Sherlock Holmes stories in the newspaper. They were not large volumes. Uh, they were serialized and people waited on bated breath each issue to get the next piece of the story. And so uh, I love that Richard used his own experience as a journalist and, and played, what if I got a box at an auction and, and it had those famous writings of Dr. Watson so that that is a compelling hook that that makes draws me in anyway. Uh, there's lots of ways to make a story compelling. I come from a family of storytellers. Not everyone is a writer, but we're all pretty good at telling a yarn. And one of the things I noticed growing up was how much storytelling actually happened. I grew up in the Northwest from an old pioneer family, and we would go hunting and fishing, and and um, there'd be multiple generations involved. And so if we were on the coast crabbing and, and salmon fishing as a family unit, there'd be grandparents and aunts and great uncles and great great uncles and aunts and family friends that had come you know, been family friends because of generational ties. And there would always be stories. And they were colorfully described and intonation was used. And they would draw you in. And as a kid, I remember fighting going to sleep because I wanted to hear the next story grandpa was telling at the fire or a story I wasn't supposed to be hearing because it was maybe a little more adult in nature. Um, And I would ask way too many questions. And uh, so I learned to be quiet and listen. So when you are writing or whether it's music or you're writing um, a a tale. Part of what makes something compelling is something that draws the reader in that they can identify with. Um, Maybe they didn't experience the kind of love that Heston and Connie talked about in the interview, but maybe they want it. There's a reason romance novels are so popular. Love them or hate them, they're popular because that's something people seek in life. Adventure and mystery. So often people look at their own lives as ordinary and regular instead of seeing the remarkableness of it um, on a daily life. And that's why they seek fantasy or fiction or juicy nonfiction. And the truth of it is there's very few boring lifetimes. There's very few boring people. It's just some people are better storytellers than others. 
And I used to, um, when I would meet people and we'd be talking and sharing stories about life, they'd be like, wow, my life isn't as interesting as yours. And I'd say, well, I don't know about that. I'm really good at telling stories. So tell me about your life. And they'd, they'd tell me about their life. And then I would recount it back to them in a more interesting way. And suddenly their life seemed far more brilliant than they first imagined. So the art of storytelling is connecting people, making it relevant, making it juicy, making people feel something. Whether it's, oh man, isn't that sweet? And I'd love to see a lot more of those stories in the world. That's why I wrote the Granny Annie book, The Double Bubble Conjecture. I wrote that because I believe we need more good news in the world. It's the same reason I brought Heston and Connie on the show. And it's the same reason I read Richard T. Ryan, uh, a sample of his book, The Merchant of Menace, here on the podcast. I think we need happy endings. I think there's enough dystopianism in real life. I think there's enough tragedy and enough trauma. I don't think we really need to highlight it. I don't think abuse is any more prevalent today than it ever has been. I think we're finding out about it. Because I lived it in a time when people didn't talk about it, but I lived it you see. And what I wanted, even going through the trauma, wasn't to have someone identify with my pain. I wanted to know there was hope and that there could be a better life and that there really was sunshine at the end of the storm, that I wouldn't always feel so horrible. I wanted stories of people who made a good life. It's one of the reasons I loved Dr. Maya Angelou's Still I Rise poem and her book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Uh, because that was hope to me as a young person. So when you are writing, I think so many of you are working on dark works, and if you can finish those, great, but if you can't finish those stories, ask yourself why. You'll find in my short stories, I'm not hiding reality. There's no Pollyannishness to it. But it's pragmatic hopefulness. And I think the world needs a lot of that these days. And I urge you as storytellers, write a compelling, hopeful story. Write a happy ending that makes sense. And with that, I'm going to love you and leave you. And I look forward to having you comment about this on the blog or, you know, shoot me a message on Twitter. Go ahead and tweet at me. You can find me at twitter.com forward slash at or nights underscore LA. And I'll put that in the notes. I look forward to seeing you in another episode. This is L.A. Rivers. See you on Twitter.